This is All the Cool Parts number 19 for August 27th, 2010. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All the Cool Parts number 19. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and this is our first hardcore repertoire episode. I'll be presenting a CD uh, by French composer Pierre Boulez, where he is leading his ensemble, the Ensemble Incontemporaine, uh, as conductor and also presenting uh, some of his more recent work. In addition to that, I'll be talking to you guys about music as language and listening with open ears and trying to convince you to give this music a chance. So all that and more this week on All the Cool Parts. I thought I would start off this podcast by talking about music as language. So musical language as compared to spoken language. And uh, really a lot of people don't realize that both of these languages are really, really similar to each other. Musical language and spoken language. They have a lot of similarities, um, but most just don't realize how closely related these two things are. Uh, the first thing I would ask, and, and I know this is a really, uh, can be a, a lot to ask of somebody because it's not easy to do, but I would first ask you to approach this music with as open a mind as is possible. Now, um, I try to do this with all the music I hear, but even, even I have a tough time doing it because, you end up bringing a lot of baggage with you when you listen to music. And, and a lot of people, uh, I think almost everyone, has ideas in their head about what makes music and what doesn't. Um, so if you bring those preconceived notions to all music that you hear, I think it's really going to limit uh, the scope of music that you're able to enjoy. Um, so... Because uh, basically, you know, if you hear some music and it doesn't conform to those ideas that you have of what makes music music, then it's really going to uh, you, you could potentially miss out on a really a rare gem of a piece or a song or whatever. Um, so I, that's what I ask you first to do is try to come up this with as open a mind and with no expectations, um, as much as that's possible to do. Uh, then I wanted to talk about, uh, I want to talk about, uh, musical language, um, being like spoken language and, uh, really the music that we're used to hearing popular music, uh, which can be any genre of popular music, meaning rock country, hip-hop, electronica, jazz, uh, anything, Um, and also standard classical music. So music like we're used to hearing from uh, Mozart and Bach and Beethoven and and all these eras. Uh, These are all written in the same language, in in essentially the same language, which is uh, referred to as kind of the traditional tonal system. Uh, And uh, this is our vernacular. This is what we speak 
this is what we understand. This is what we learn from birth. This is our, you know, as an American, this is our English. Um, then uh, there are many other kinds of music that don't use this language. Uh, a lot of music from the East, uh, traditional musics of China, Japan, India, for example, these uh, they, they use completely different systems than all this music that we're used to that came from Europe basically that developed in the Western world. And a lot of contemporary classical music and a lot of classical music that was developed in the 20th century use completely different languages to communicate, you know, what they're trying to communicate. And a lot of these languages were developed in the 20th century. A lot of them were developed by the composers that wrote the pieces. Um, so there was a lot of experimentation and innovation in uh, the last century. And uh, <clears throat> this is, I think, a, a, an extremely port important thing to realize uh, when I'm trying to present uh, some hardcore music like this to you. Um, and uh, so, uh, with that said, um, another point I wanted to bring up is that uh, a lot of this music, you know, a lot of the music that we hear uh, on the radio that's popular music, I mean, you can pretty much get it on one hearing, even on a passive hearing. Like if you hear it when you're kind of doing something else, when you're uh, cooking dinner or uh, browsing the Internet or whatever, and you're just sort of passively listening, you can get it uh, on the first listening. A lot of this music, even if you're diligently uh listening like super focused listening it takes more than one hearing to really digest everything that's going on in this music and um really i think the rule should be that if it really and truly sounds like complete and random noise to you you should keep your mind open and give it another chance and if it still sounds like that you should give it another chance um, if, uh, you know, if you think it's worth it, um, the, basically it's kind of like a native English speaker hearing Chinese for the first time. Um, our brains really don't contain the experience to be able to decode these sounds into something we can understand. Uh, we, we can still hear it I and mean, we can still hear the Chinese being spoken. We can hear the sounds it just sounds like gibberish to us while the Chinese speaker, you know, it makes perfect sense to them. Uh, really music is the same. It is, it is exactly the same, both spoken language and music. I mean, really both these things are just collections of organized sounds that we learn to recognize, uh, so that we can communicate things and uh music is the same it's organized sound in order to communicate something uh something you know when it when it comes to music uh all music is pretty abstract i mean it's you know you can't touch it you can't feel it you can just hear it and so it's all communicating something really abstract but it is set up to it is organized sound and it's organized in such a way to communicate and uh, it's organized within languages within musical languages uh, so, uh, just try to keep all that in mind, uh, with this. And before I go into the music, I wanted to kind of set this up, uh, with some, what I'm going to do is read you a couple of music reviews of a couple of mystery pieces by a couple of mystery composers, uh, from the past. I'm going to read you guys the review and... I'm going to give you guys a couple seconds to maybe guess who the review is talking about. And then I'm going to play the piece that the review is talking about and the reviewer is reviewing. Uh, so without further ado, let me um, let me get to the first interview. Or not, not the first interview, the first review, blah, blah. Okay, so here is review number one. And uh, I'll omit the composer's name and the piece name and any other thing that could give this away but 
All right, so here it is. If the best critics and orchestras have failed to find the meaning of blank's blank symphony, <laughs> we may well be pardoned if we confess our inability to find any. The adagio certainly possessed much beauty, but the other movements, particularly the last, appear to be an incomprehensible union of strange harmonies. We can sincerely say that rather than study this last work for beauties which do not exist, he had far rather hear the others where beauties are plain. So, what piece and what composer do you think this reviewer could be talking about? Hmm. I'll give you a couple seconds to guess. All right, are you ready? I'll play an excerpt from the piece that this is talking about, the piece where beauties do not exist. Here it is. So that review of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, um, where, let me remind you, it said the last movement appeared to be an incomprehensible union of strange harmonies, that's what you just heard, uh, was from the Daily Atlas, uh, written in, uh, which is, a, I guess, a Boston newspaper from February 6, 1853. Um I've got one more for you here. Let me read you, read you this review. We'll do the same thing. I'll read it. I'll omit the uh, composer's name. And uh, I'll let you guess. And then I'll play. Okay, so here it is. The Blank Sextet is a work built upon dry-as-dust elements. It is one of those odd compositions which at times slip from the pen of blank apparently in order to prove how excellent a mathematician he might have become, but how prosaic, how hopeless, how unfeeling, how unemotional, how arid a musician he really was. You feel an undercurrent of surds, of quadratic equations, of hyperbolic curves, of the dynamics of a particle. But it must not be forgotten that music is not only a science, it is also an art. The sextet was played with precision, and that is the only way in which you can work out a problem in musical trigonometry. Uh, so let me play. I'll give you a couple seconds. Think about it. Who, who it could be. What piece. Um, and uh, here, I'll, here it is. I'll play a little excerpt from this example of this um, unfeeling, unemotional, arid music. Here it is. was from the string sextet number one of Johannes Brahms. Uh, and that review came to us from a Vernon Blackburn writing for the Pall Mall Gazette in London, February 28th, 1900. So what's the point of me playing these things and reading these uh, reviews? Um, the point is these reviewers, uh, did exactly the things that I'm asking you not to. Um, 
it's hard for us to imagine that what we just heard, it, that anybody could put those labels on what we just heard, uh, unfeeling, mathematical, um, uh, any of those labels that he put on it. And then we hear it and uh, we're, we're like, what? Uh, so it's it's really difficult for us to imagine. But at the time that these pieces, they were new. I mean, these, these composers, Beethoven, Brahms, um, and many others that have gotten reviews like this, uh, they were pushing the envelope of music at the time. And these reviewers had a firm idea in their heads of what music was and what good music was. And when they heard something, such as the last movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or Brahms's String Sextet Number no. 1 that didn't conform to their preconceived ideas, uh, this is the result. Uh, and uh, again, it's really hard for us to imagine this music that we just heard. Uh, it's hard to imagine someone hearing it that way. Um, so... This is what I'm asking, you know, th- this these composers, many, many composers of new classical music are, you know, they're not only trying to write great music and exciting music, but they're trying to push the envelope of music. And um, many of them do so very successfully and many of them don't. But uh, you can, uh, if you have an open enough mind, you know, you can uh, determine that for yourself. One other thing I wanted to say is that uh, I'm definitely not, you know, with all this that I'm saying, I'm definitely not saying that if you just listen to all this music with an open mind, you're going to love it. I'm not saying that. Uh, This is all music. It's music just like any other music. You know, you're going to like some of it, and you're not going to like other music. You know, it's just governed by your own personal tastes. Uh, what I am saying, so, you know, even if you really did approach this music with a totally blank slate, a totally open mind, you know, it's still quite possible that you, you might not like it still. <laughs> you know, that's, I'm not saying that you should like it all. Um, what I What I am saying is I'm just trying to get you to approach it with a really open mind and a really curious mind instead of shutting it out initially because it might sound strange. So with that, let's get on to a little bit about our composer, Pierre Boulez, and then we can uh, get into the excerpts. So Pierre Boulez, um, he was born March 26th, 1925 in mont France. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of French in this show because he is French and he titles things in French and I can't pronounce French. So there you go. Uh, there's going to be a lot of mispronunciation in this show. Uh, my own, my own history with Pierre Boulez is a bit rocky. I mean, um, you know, I first heard Boulez's music in music school in theory class and, uh, you, you know, 20th century music classes. And, uh, Boulez is a quite major figure in, uh, uh, classical music. And uh, he's lived a long, illustrious life with a major career. I mean, he first made his impact in the late 40s. And, uh, you know, he's still going strong, uh, composing and conducting and kind of reinventing music. I mean, over in Paris, uh, you know, most Americans, average Americans, of course, never heard of Pierre Boulez. But over in France, Pierre Boulez is... A nationally known figure and uh, a, a kind of a national treasure, very, very highly respected. And uh, anyway, when I first heard Boulez's music, uh, you know, anybody that knows me well knows that I'm generally not a big fan of, uh, let's just put a a real blanket general term. Not a real big fan of atonal music. Uh, generally, I'm not a big fan of it. Uh, and uh, there's my phone. So I don't, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep going. <laughs> I was gonna stop it, but 
you know what? Let's just keep going. You know, in, in spirit of Boulez and indeterminacy, you know, stuff like stuff happens. It's music, right? It's a tone. Anyway, uh, so oh, there's the answering machine. You guys can hear it. Oh, they they didn't leave a message. So that was probably Boulez calling. Um, <laughs> okay, man, I'm totally off track now. Um, so my early uh, experience with Boulez, uh, that I didn't like it <laughs> basically is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, a, a lot of early pieces, you know, his, a piece, a hammer without a master and these kind of things, even though I, I can appreciate, uh, the impact that these pieces had, um, they just never connected with me. And, uh, you know, so I just, this music was never a part of me as a, as a musician. Uh, however, that changed um, when I heard this piece that he wrote uh, in uh, 97, 98, I believe, uh, called Surencis, which is one of the pieces that I'm going to present on this show. And uh, Surencis was, it was just, it was different from the earlier pieces of Boulez. Um, it had, uh, it was closer to tonality. Now it's not tonal. Um, and it, it definitely not tonal in, tra- in the traditional sense, but it's closer. Uh, so it had uh, a little more of a connection with me. Um, and also had the ensemble that he put together for this piece. Really unusual, really cool and unique ensemble of three pianos, three harps, and three percussionists, which the percussion are mainly playing mallet instruments like vibraphones, marimbas, uh, tubular bells, um, these kinds of instruments. Um, So the overall total sound created by this ensemble just blew me away. It was um, this silvery white crystalline composite of a sound um, that... To me, even though this music is not tonal, was absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. And uh, I was, you know, and I already had, I had my preconceived notions just like everybody else, especially when I was a young student. You know, I was really, oh, I don't like Boulez, blah, blah, blah. And and, uh, so I was kind of doubly blown away by this piece, that um, he could write this piece that would not only... I would love it on the first hearing, but it would break through all of those preconceived notions that I had. That I was convinced that I did not like Boulez and that I would never like Boulez. And uh, that's a a real credit to, to him as a composer. Um, and uh, I had another story about this piece, um, which I'll, I'll tell very, very shortly. Uh, to make a long story short... Um, I used to be an assistant in the Indiana University New Music Ensemble. It's an ensemble of some of the best performers at the Indiana University playing all contemporary music. And they played this piece in, I think, it was 2002, around there. Um, So I got to see this piece in rehearsal every day, uh, taken apart, you know, and, and rehearsed and put together from the inside out. Uh, and um, it was just an unbelievably awesome experience. Uh, so without further ado, let's get in to this piece. So the first excerpt from Sir and Cease by Pierre Boulez. Uh, this piece is divided into two parts uh, played without pause. Uh, and um, this first excerpt that I pulled from the first movement really kind of illustrates a more quiet, introspective, kind of almost mystical sounding section. And this, all this music I I wanted to mention really comes from, I really see it as a natural line of progression. It really comes from this long line, this long tradition of French composers that where they're concerned with really color and sonority, and uh, this can go back to you know you can trace this back to Messiaen, Ravel, Debussy, even Berlioz. Um, before that, 
So uh, this is just he's just you know even though he is pushing the boundaries he he's in a way carrying the French tradition you know he's kind of carrying the torch of this French tradition um, the uh, the sound you know the sounds that you get from this excerpts from the from the ensemble uh, almost sound like naturally occurring phenomena. Uh, kind of like something you would hear echoing through a gigantic crystalline cavern. So our next excerpt from Surin Sea is also from the first movement. This is a more lively and frenetic uh, example. And in this excerpt, we have Boulez playing with these three different sort of motivic ideas. We have these uh, fast chromatic runs up and down. Then we have these quick rapid fire notes that are kind of sounded through the throughout the ensemble. So you have these single notes. just sort of uh, one after the other, sort of bouncing around the entire ensemble. Then you have these sort of Jerry Lee Lewis-style repeated chords in the pianos. So you have these three things that are kind of um, laid one after the other, sometimes on top of each other. Uh, and you have all this stuff going on. It's really busy. It's really dense. It's really quick. And in this ensemble of such... Uh, similar sounding timbres, you know, pianos and harps and, and uh, mallet percussion. In the hands of a lesser composer, this it would be mud. I mean this would be the texture would be absolute mud. It was just it would just be a, a muddy mess. Um however Boulez's absolute mastery of orchestration and counterpoint make it crystal clear. And uh yeah, I'm going to be totally overusing the word crystal in this episode. So in our next excerpt, this is from the uh, second section of Surinsis. Uh You have the ensemble uh, sort of building up these chords, these big chords throughout the entire ensemble, and then letting the sonorities of these chords just ring. So Boulez kind of has these sonorities just vibrating the air around the ensemble. Um, and uh, at the very end of the excerpt, we have this really uh, pretty cool written out echo effect in the three pianos 
but an echo, I don't know, not so much from nature, so not really kind of a natural echo, but more like an electronic echo uh, that might be produced by a digital delay through multi-channel sound. Um, Boulez has a strong history with electronic music, and uh, I'll get into that later in the podcast. Uh, but for now, here's uh, the third excerpt from Surinces. In our last excerpt from Surin Cease, uh, this comes toward the end of the piece. And here, Boulez has these kind of giant, ever-growing crescendos uh, in the entire ensemble towards... uh, These crescendos sort of build up um, from kind of quiet to extremely loud and burst into these sections of kind of hyper-frenetic activity. Um, it, it basically happens kind of over and over again each time, building up bigger crescendos and getting to bigger moments of uh, hyper frenetic activity. Um, so, if there could be said to be sort of a main climactic point in the piece, I think this would probably be it. Um, the piece, and, well, not the piece, this excerpt ends with uh, kind of a similar echoed chords in the piano as in the previous example. Not quite the same chords, but a really similar uh, chordal echo figure to end the uh, section. So the next piece that I'm going to talk about, uh, Message Kiss, I think I'm saying that sort of right, uh, <laughs> from 1976 to 1977. Um, this piece is for another, yet another cool and unusual group of instruments. It's for an ensemble of six cellos with a cello soloist. So total of seven cellos, uh, one soloist and and six cellists, other cellists making the ensemble. And um, this excerpt that is from um, towards the beginning of the piece, this is kind of how the piece starts. Um, The cello ensemble starts on these natural harmonics. And uh, this paints a kind of translucent backdrop. Again, crystalline in sound, but this time more akin to sort of sustained crystal glasses, maybe, as opposed to the more percussive 
sounds of Surencees. Um, this is then once this backdrop is in place, uh, it's punctuated by the cello soloist, and he comes in playing these pizzicato figures. This is where the cellist plucks the strings instead of bow, uh, and there is some bowed notes in there. And also, the uh, soloist has this ricochet effect where the cello solos will take the back part of the bow, the wood part of the bow, and ricochet it off of the strings. So if you listen real carefully, you can hear that. Our second excerpt from Message uh comes from uh, uh, kind of the middle of the piece, and it's really different from the first example. This one is sort of features this virtuosic, perpetual motion, frenzied bowing from the soloist and the ensemble. This continues in the solar part, this sort of frenzied bowing. And the ensemble are sort of interjecting these punctuated chords in accompaniment. It's uh, it's just really cool, really fast, really exciting. <laughs> example is uh, from the, this is the central cadenza for the solo cello. So this is just the cello soloist by themselves. And uh, I wanted to play you this example because I wanted to show you how this music that was written 20 years before Surencees directly relates to Surencees. Um, you'll hear the cellist play these fast figures followed by a kind of sustained low pitch. Uh, and this is a motive that really plays heavily in Surencees, and it actually starts the piece. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play you this example from Messajukis, and then I'll have it go right into the very beginning of Surencees, so you can hear how these relate. And they're in different keys. Um, that's in, That's definitely in quotes, keys. But... You can hear that the figurations um, are really the same. It's the same idea. (laughs) 
For our last example from Mezajakis, uh, I'm just going to play you the really super cool ending of the piece. Um, it's this idea that's related to uh, one of the excerpts I played before, this fast, frenetic bowing. But here it's even more intense and more loud uh, and frenzied than before. It's just uh, really cool and truly hardcore. third piece I'm going to present to you guys is the third piece on the CD uh, called Anthems 2 and this is a piece for solo violin with pre-recorded sounds and electronics Um, so this tradition of electronic music, making music from, you know, just electronically, however that is, with electronic instruments or with uh, digital sound or manipulating uh, real sounds in a digital environment, these kind of things. Uh, This, again, comes from the tradition begun with the French. And this was started uh, with a composer named Pierre Schaeffer in the late 1940s. Uh, And he started this movement called Musique Concrète, um, where they took, they recorded sounds from real life this could be a car door slamming or uh you know an elevator going up and down or a baby crying or you know whatever uh and then they would use you know very early recording devices tape machines uh turntables very very early synthesizers and all this kind of thing and create pieces or even a lot of people like to call it sound art so um you know art that would be made from the medium medium of sound you know as opposed to art being made from the medium of clay or paint or steel or whatever um and uh so this is a a continuation of this tradition uh from Boulez and Boulez is so he's really ingrained in this tradition in uh in fact, in 1970, uh, then French President Georges Pompidou um, asked Boulez to found an institution for the research of music. Uh, could not imagine this happening in this country, uh, but this <laughs> became the giant and extremely important music research center called IRCOM in uh, France. Uh, and uh, this is still in use today, highly in use. It's a it's a giant center for contemporary music and developing new uh, ways, new techniques, new technologies in digital and electronic music, and uh, all these uh, this kind of direction. Um, so about the piece, 
um, it can be a little difficult when you're just hearing a recording of it to, I don't know, kind of discern what's what, you know, to, to uh, kind of be able to discern what's the live player, what's pre-recorded sound, what's electronic. Um, but the performer really, he does an uh, incredible job with this. And um, speaking from personal experience of playing pieces with pre-recorded sounds, sort of electronic pieces like this with acoustic instruments, um, I've done it. And uh, it can be very difficult to sync up with this pre-recorded material. Um, so, you know, it, basically if the, the pre-recorded stuff is uh, it's just going to keep going. You know, it's not going to wait for you. So if you get off at all, you're screwed. So um, this uh, performer does an amazing job. Uh, in this particular example, in this first example... We have kind of a mix of pizzicato sounds. Again, those are sounds produced by the violinist plucking the strings. And uh, Boulez really sort of creates some crazy rhythmic textures util utilizing the solo violin with the recording and the electronics. In our second example from Anthems, um, sorry, Anthems 2, uh, this is a, it's an example of setting up the electronics to react to what the live violinist is doing. So first we'll hear the electronics harmonizing with the live melody that the violinist is playing, and it creates this sort of eerie uh, sort of chorale. Then uh, the electronics are set up to produce this rapid popping pizzicato explosions uh, beneath this kind of jagged and angular violin melody that the live player is performing. third example from Anthems 2. We hear the violin solo with the uh, sort of rapid popping pizzicato electronics uh, interrupted by these multiple violin chords that are digitally echoed. And in our last excerpt for this first hardcore repertoire, um, we hear the towards the end of Anthems 2, uh, we can hear the electronics reacting to these strummed chords in the violin. And this creates these almost phantasmal sustained sonorities. This is followed by, uh, well, it ends with kind of an explosion of multiple violins in digital echoes.
everybody, welcome to this week's All the Cool Parts Idol. And I thought I would play you guys, uh, since I have played some electronic music on this show, I thought I would play you guys some more. Um, and I, I got a great, uh, just a really awesome and fun piece by composer David Farrell called 8-Bit Chacon. And uh, first I'll just read you and tell you a little bit about David. Um, He was born Chicago, Illinois in 1982. And uh, he graduated from uh, Indiana University uh, just this May. So May 2010. Um, He got his doctorate from IU. So congratulations to him. And he is currently uh, residing in Huntsville, Texas, as a uh, assistant professor of music uh, at Sam Houston State University, um, the home of the King of Texas. So uh, I'm just going to read you guys what Dave says about his own piece, uh, 8-Bit Chacon. This is uh, composed in 2009, and uh, this is what Dave says about his piece. 8-Bit Chacon was written for fun after a long time spent studying for my doctoral oral exams in the fall of 2009 I was eager to write music again I wanted to put out a finished product quickly and so in a couple days I put together 8-Bit Chacon using simple audio software and samples Uh, people of a certain age have an inherent love of what is now called chiptune music fueled by nostalgia for childhood spent with the NES that's the Nintendo Entertainment System, and the lo-fi charm of that system's music. I am of that age and unabashedly adore 8-bit sounds, so putting together something like this is simply too much fun to stay away from. The form and textures are simple, and strictly speaking, it is probably not a chaconne, but it does have a very limited harmonic vocabulary. And uh, so I'll, again, you know, in an in a idle form, I'll play this whole thing, uh, so this is not an excerpt. This is the entire piece, and uh, it's just a—it's a really cool piece. I, I love it, and it's also kind of hardcore in the way that um, a lot of the melodic lines uh, are really—I mean, this is really truly a tr- electronic music. I don't think these lines could be played by a human being, at least not in this way. I'm sure you could probably find somebody out there in the world um, who was locked in a room for 10 hours a day when they were children who could probably play these. But um, generally speaking, this is not music that could be played by human, at least the the melodic part of it, and you'll hear that. So anyway, uh, here it is. Uh, David Farrell's 8-Bit Chacon. Thank you. 
Hey, performers, performing ensembles, and composers. All the Cool Parts podcast wants your music for All the Cool Parts Idol. If you're an emerging artist with a good quality recording, and you'd like All the Cool Parts podcast to share it with the world, please email sound files and other details to allthecoolparts at gmail.com. Help me share your music with the world. And that does it, folks, for this week's show, this week's All the Cool Parts number 19, and our first hardcore repertoire. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll do we'll do it again at another time. If you have any comments um, about this show, about the hardcore nature of this show, <laughs> please email those to allthecoolparts at gmail.com. You can look at the show notes at allthecoolparts.blogspot.com. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash anthonylandman. And you can visit me on the web at anthonyjosephlandman.com. And uh, I'm going to leave you guys with the very end of Pierre Boulez's Surnsis. And we will see you next time. Later. Blah, blah.